0: Hello and welcome to The New Orchard. Is your mind feeling particularly open today? I hope so because you're going to need a very, very open mind to get anything substantive out of my conversation with my next guest, Mark Gober. Mark is the brains behind the Where Is My Mind podcast and an author of an End to Upside Down series of books. The book that captured my attention last year in 2023 And the book that led me to Mark was titled An End to Upside-Down Thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. There are other books in the series. I'm going to list them now because I really would like you to see how much ground has this guy covered in such a short time frame. If I'm not mistaken, I think he wrote all of those books in the last five or six years. Let's start with the last one. An end to upside-down medicine, contagion, viruses and vaccines and why consciousness is needed for a new paradigm of health. An end to upside-down reset, the leftist vision for society under the Great Reset and how it can fall caring people into supporting harmful causes. An end to upside-down contact, UFOs, aliens and spirits and why their ongoing interaction with human civilization matters. An end to upside-down liberty, Turning traditional political thinking on its head to break free from enslavement. And the last one, an end to upside down living, reorienting our consciousness to live better and save human species. I think Mark is a prolific writer and a polymath who has over the years been working and investigating things that I have a deep interest in as well. So I was really pleased to have found him just out of the blue. Early in the year, after finishing reading Ian McGilchry's beautiful, beautiful book, The Master and His Emissary, I found myself diving deep into the rabbit hole of theory of consciousness, trying to better understand what has changed, what new understanding of this thing we call consciousness was. By random chance, while doing this research slash reading, I have stumbled across Mark's Where Is My Mind podcast, and it completely blew my mind. Released in 2019, Where Is My Mind explores a revolutionary hypothesis. What if consciousness comes from outside the body? What I loved about the podcast series and aforementioned book was a clearly articulated challenge to today's scientific dogma which states that consciousness is a product of our material brains and a proposal to the audience to open their mind and contemplate, at least for a short moment in time, an alternative position. You might ask yourself, why would that matter and why should we waste our precious time pursuing and investigating something that lives on the very fringes of what we collectively deem as important in our current moment? To help with that question, Mark takes us on the journey of exploration, looking at different materialistically unexplained phenomena like telepathy, precognition, near-death experiences, after-death communications, remote viewing and many more interesting psychic phenomena for which there is no space in the modern mainstream science of discourse. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because that's my current opinion based on everything that I have read, listened to and investigated myself. I appreciate a lot of people out there will want to swap unfortunately for fortunately, I totally get it. Unfortunately, entire branches of science are currently firmly locked into the materialist worldview of consciousness. So, If you happen to be a researcher, a scientist who wishes to investigate matters residing in the materialist domain, you might even end up having a very sweet career ahead of you. Funding and fancy gadgetry abound waiting for you if you know how to play the game. If you happen to sit on the other side, And if you're looking for a more complete picture of reality, which encapsulates both the materialist and the non-materialist worldview, you will likely face serious levels of opposition in the mainstream institutions. And that is a simple fact. Personally, I have believed this for a relatively long time. I think the implications of upgrading a materialist scientific paradigm has the potential to totally and swiftly shift our collective worldview, impacting how we communicate, how we coexist with one another, how we treat each other and ultimately how we die and transition to a different state of being. I know this sounds super crazy, but I stand by it and I truly believe it. It would be ungrateful and silly not to have appreciation for what materialists have contributed to growth and flourishing of our civilization and how far they have pushed the scientific boundaries of what's possible. But at the same time, I can't really ignore the downsides, I can't brush aside all the negative externalities and unintended consequences when observing and analysing the current state of the world, current state of our collective health, the ever-expanding footprint of technology taking us further away from what's foundationally human. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring Mark into the New Orchard was not so much to deep dive into his work in a granular detail, that's what his podcast and his books are there for, but to merely explore what made him do the work in the first place. What past experiences made him the man he is and essentially introduce him to the audience. I think Mark could have easily picked a different path for himself, a path of blissful ignorance and material indulgence. He's got the smarts to be successful at almost anything, but what he chose was the hard and tricky path, trying to find new truths and help people understand and benefit from the knowledge. Knowledge which, in our modern societies, has been obscured and relegated to the very fringes. One of the main reasons why I've started The New Orchard was to encourage people to support, I guess, by buying their products. A book, a Substack subscription, a pot of organic honey or some flour, whatever good and high-quality stuff they make. At the end of the day, if we want to see the change in the world, we have to ensure people like Mark and other guests we're going to have on the program can put food on a table and have enough resources to look after their families. I strongly believe that reading an Enter Upside Down thinking and listening to Where's My Mind podcast is going to open your eyes and mind to things that are not only extremely fascinating but will also help you understand the potential of what a more complete view of reality could mean for all of us. A reality where materialist and metaphysical no longer battle out for total dominance, but combine into a new operating paradigm of understanding. Let me provide a quick example using near-death experiences described in one of the chapters of Mark's book. People who have experienced NDEs are as profoundly impacted and transformed as people who have had totally transformative and deeply spiritual ayahuasca, psilocybin and DMT experiences. In some extreme cases, they are brought back to life with almost a regret having so much love and appreciation for what they have seen, felt, and experienced on the other side. They completely lose the fear of dying, no matter what their circumstances are, and I think pollinating this kind of knowledge into our culture, into the mainstream, and perhaps even creating new or maybe even reviving old spiritual rituals for people who are awaiting certain death, instead of terrifying them with million beeping sounds of hospital machines, could have the most profound impact on how we say goodbye to our loved ones and how we embrace death as another rite of passage on a bigger eternal journey into the deep unknown. If you had to hold the hand of a dying person in a sterile hospital setting, a person who was absolutely petrified of drawing the last breath, I think you'd understand what I mean here. And by the way, the NDE's is only a fraction of territory Mark covers in an end to upside-down thinking. I think the wisdom of the old world somehow knew this and managed to cast a very long shadow that survived in one form or another from tribe to tribe and from century to century. Now contrast that with us today. Being so hypnotized by different technological distractions and the trinkets of modernity, we have completely sanitized this brand of metaphysical thought out of our daily discourse to our own detriment. And this is why I love what Marx is trying to do here with his work opening one mind at a time and pursuing the objective truth and trying to find new knowledge. I say this a lot in my private conversations. Don't ever take my conclusions at face value. You have to read the material, listen to the author, always do your own research and make up your own mind. I know it takes effort. It takes discipline. You can do it. It's a matter of forming a good habit. So form it because it will improve your life wholesale. All right, I understand this was a bit of a long setup, but I wanted to get a few of the key points across. And when all of that's said and done, let's just get into it and let's hear what Mark has to say. Mark, it is very good to see you finally. How have you been, my friend?
1: Patrick, thanks for having me on. I'm well.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here with us today, and thank you for agreeing to have this conversation with me, Mark. I'm very excited being able to talk to you and ask you a few questions after finishing your book only a couple of weeks ago. Let's start with a short introduction. Maybe perhaps you can focus on and tell us what kind of pivotal experiences in the past that you have that made you the person you are today and inspired you to do the work that you've done over the last few years.
1: Sure. Well, growing up, I was focused on tennis. So I was always training and going to different tournaments so that was a huge part of my life and I was very focused on getting good grades and I was very social so between those three areas I was very busy and I was not I wasn't thinking about the big questions that I've ended up writing about now I I was always so busy because I had what seemed like a fire drill in front of me I had to prepare for a tournament or I had some big exam So I was kind of on that treadmill for a very long time. And then I went to Princeton for undergrad, which is a high-pressure school academically and then playing tennis there as well. I was always super busy and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I was just going through the motions in a lot of ways, going through the next thing that was in front of me that I was trying to achieve, basically. And uh, so I went into investment banking when I graduated, still not really knowing exactly why i mean I, I went into it because i thought it would be good, a good platform for a career not because i necessarily wanted to be an investment banker my whole life so it was uh, almost like punting a bit just giving buying myself some time and i decided to leave in 2010 i joined a company where i ended up spending 10 years um, first in boston and then in silicon valley and I was focused on advising technology companies or companies that have technology. And in particular, our focus was on patents. So companies that maybe had a a very significant patent portfolio and they wanted to sell them to someone else or they wanted to buy patents or technology from another company or they needed strategic advice on what to do with all the technology they had developed. So it was kind of a hybrid of business strategy, learning about technology in the weeds, and then also the legal aspects of all of it. And in this process, it's it's. I was following the same track of being on a treadmill, where I definitely felt like I was more. There was more intellectual stimulation in that job in Silicon Valley because it was pretty complex. But I didn't exactly know why I was doing what I was doing. I didn't have a greater sense of purpose. And I, as I learned more from, let's say, science and the world that I was growing up in, I came to believe that anything so-called spiritual or religious must have been fantasy or superstition that we had evolved past. So, I was more in the agnostic, atheistic, materialist camp in terms of my life outlook. And one of the issues with that outlook is that there is no meaning built into it. Life is fundamentally meaningless. It doesn't mean that people can't kind of arbitrarily create their own meaning under a materialist perspective, and that's how I thought about things. But it wasn't like there was there's any meaning that's built into the fabric of reality itself. And if you think about that hard enough, and that was actually something I thought about, like, well, why does it even matter if I achieve this thing I want to achieve? Like, let's say I do achieve it, but we're all just going to die anyway, and that's the end and if i don't achieve it well why is it so bad cuz we're all going to die anyway and if you have that outlook it's and really think about the implications it's hard it's hard to go forward in a lot of ways i was ended up going through the motions and feeling really lost like i hit a wall maybe I would say culminated in 2016, but for a few years leading up to it with so, the amount of pressure I had in my life that was very much self-imposed of putting myself in high pressure situations and then not really seeing a deeper meaning behind it. And that's that's ultimately what led to this journey of starting to write books and to look at the nature of reality where I, I stumbled across podcasts in 2016. I actually wasn't looking for a different point of view on life. I thought that science had had gotten us pretty close. So I wasn't, even though I hit a wall, I didn't think there was another way of looking at life. I just thought, well, this like tough mark, you have to deal with it. That's the way life is. It's it's meaningless. And then I came across information that challenged that. And long story short, so that was 2016. Here we are. I've, I've begun to look at many different paradigms that I've had to challenge in my own way of thinking. Um, the sixth book in the series I just finished writing on the topic of medicine, but I've covered many different areas because basically when I started to unpack the very basic nature of reality and realize that I was so off base in that area, I, I then started to look at other areas and realized, wow, I was really off base in this place too. So this this idea of upside down, which is part of the title of all of my books, I didn't know that there were going to be multiple books when I wrote the first one and end to upside down thinking. And as I've learned more and more, I'm realizing that virtually everything in this world is upside down.
0: Yeah, it would be quite hard to disagree with that last statement, objectively speaking. When I was reading your book, I got curious about the character of the author and I wondered, how did he end up with such a pregnant and open mind? So when you were growing up, did you have anyone around you who had similar qualities that you have developed in yourself and who inspired you to be naturally and insatiably curious? Anyone in your family maybe or extended circle of friends?
1: I, I feel like I, I did this one on my own. I was not pushed in this direction in any way. I
0: wouldn't be able to tell you why, but that's not the answer I have expected. Um, anyway, looking at your bio, Mark, I've sort of concluded that you're a product of some relatively fancy educational institutions. Now, when you were going through the system, did you feel intellectually trapped when these somewhat unorthodox ideas started gradually invading your mind did you conclude that the educational institutions you were nested in no longer made sense did you question what you were doing there did you even question your sanity
1: you encapsulated my situation very well that when i learned about this stuff and went on this journey there was a sense of being alone in that because i was departing from everything that i knew around me in my network So I didn't even I didn't know at the time that so many people accepted these other alternative ideas. Now I know there's there are huge communities out there, but coming from where I was sitting, that was I I, I thought I was going crazy. Maybe that maybe that maybe I was missing something. And that's ultimately probably what what led me to to feel like I could write a book is that I had done so much research to actually convince myself that I wasn't totally crazy. I said, why don't I put this in in one place? Because uh, there might be other people that might feel crazy or uh, they've only seen bits and pieces of the evidence and it's not enough for them to want to dive in.
0: Would you say that by the time you finish with formal education and you reach the age of 24, 25, you're firmly locked into the, into the materialist worldview and the scientific method?
1: Yeah, well, I would say I was materialist probably even before 25-ish. I mean, it was embedded in the education system. It's often not stated. But anything that's spiritual or religious is is kind of treated differently it's treated as like well we don't think that way anymore so that's that there was a subtle imprinting in from through my education as i went through the system and then um so i think that i became increasingly set in a materialist worldview i do remember around 25 though that when I moved, first moved to Boston at the new firm, I, I started reading for fun a little more just to, to do something outside of work because I was so used to working all the time. And the types of books I, I was drawn to were more on the uh, materialist side. Like I loved Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, which in, he actually does make some good critiques of like the blind belief of certain religions but i was like all in on what he was saying i'm like this is the most brilliant thing and he's ultimately a hardcore materialist atheist so the more i learned from that perspective let's say in my mid-20s i was like yeah this is definitely this is the way to think about life and then a few years later everything changed
0: oh same here i was i was all in on god delusion when i was young can't exactly remember when the book came out feels like 15 20 years ago but I vividly remember being very impressed by Dawkins and his persuasive arguments he's a sharp and ruthless writer who makes absolutely no space for anything that can't be scientifically proven going back to your studies for a brief moment I'm wondering when you were consuming materialist science and reading the famous atheists, what were you impressed with most?
1: Yeah, there's something compelling about the logic. For whatever reason, I was drawn to it. They were, they were rational thinkers and they wanted evidence for everything. The whole that I didn't realize until later was that there is evidence for other phenomena that they just don't, don't talk about or they demean it because it doesn't fit their worldview. And then secondly, there are philosophical arguments that actually are more compelling than the ones they make about the nature of consciousness. And Dr. Bernardo Kastrup is one of my favorite thinkers in this area. He, he makes just a strictly philosophical argument for a transcendent consciousness that we're all a part of, and, and makes the case that it's actually superior and more parsimonious than the materialist worldview. So the the hardcore atheistic community presents an argument, but I think there's a lot that's actually lacking. And if it if that other information had been presented alongside, there might be more people to uh, engage with it.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a fair bit, trying to sort of better comprehend the incentive structure, powering such behavior. There are evidently things out there materialist science with all of its gadgetry can't really explain. So why not try some out-of-the-box thinking and doing and arrive at a more complete view of reality? Do you think mainstream science is somehow captured by some kind of special interests who are protecting the commercial arrangements? How do you make sense of it? Like, what, What do you think is going on?
1: Where I come out now is I think it's part of a broader spiritual war that we live in, in a reality in which there are forces of dark and light and the, the dark forces like to or attempt to hide the truth and that flows through people and it might flow into their thoughts or, their, or they're being influenced by energies they don't realize. So that's where I come out on it. And, it and it will then manifest in different ways, it will manifest through a lack of funding, it will manifest as people, as skeptics saying negative things about scientists who study spiritual concepts. But I think that the energy that tries to hide the truth is something that is transcendent to the physical world. That's the best I can come up with. Can I want to add one thing to that? Um, it's something I actually talk about in my new book on medicine. Um, there is a, a Catholic priest who speaks about demonic possession. So he's, he's an exorcist. And there are some people that have actually done this, and they see the same patterns over and over again where a person's actually possessed by an external spirit. And very bizarre things happen in terms of the way they speak. Sometimes the room gets cold. So there's an area of, of research which suggests this is a rare phenomenon, but it seems to be legitimate sometimes. Um, and he, he has heard things from the demons themselves in his process. And what some of them say is that they are they're sent to possess a person, and if the person survives, then that person becomes holy. Holy. So it actually ends up sanctifying the person through this horrific act. And this, that theme I've heard in other areas in, in, in different ways. The idea that darkness is actually a stimulant of evolution or that it needs to come up to be transmuted into something tr- closer to the truth or closer to the light. So when we see anything that is um, a suppression of truth, it's an opportunity in some way to transcend it and get to a higher level. So that's another way that I look at anything that seems horrific in the world, like it is horrific. And then at the same time, there's maybe a deeper purpose or a deeper opportunity that can be gleaned from it.
0: Yeah, that is, uh, that is a very interesting concept to consider darkness as a necessary stimulant to progress and uh, evolution. I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate. Like this, is, this sounds really fascinating.
1: Well, the notion of contrast is what comes to mind, is that if, if everything were just... Uniform, number one, you wouldn't have diversity of experience. But also, let's take it from the standpoint of, of pain, um, and working out in the gym. Muscles get stronger through the process of working those muscles out, and that can be uncomfortable. It can actually be painful in the process. But the net effect is in is benevolent. In the same way, you could look at it uh, like academically, studying and and. And spending a lot of effort on a paper or getting ready for a test, it can be unpleasant in some ways, but then the outcome in the end is is stronger. So there is this contrast that seems to be necessary to stimulate evolution. There's a, a quote from a, a poet named Wallace Stevens. He said, death is the mother of beauty. And that theme really might help us explain dark and light. So I think one way that this could be taken, and I think it would be taken in the wrong way, is that, well, yeah, darkness exists and it's stimulating evolution, so we don't need to worry about it. And that's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that, yeah, we need to acknowledge it and that there might be positive outcomes that result from it, but it needs to be actively managed and transmuted, so it can't be ignored. If, If we live in an evolutionary universe, then darkness is required to some degree to to stimulate it. That
0: is one of the most unexpected and interesting explanations I've have heard for a while. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about your podcast series called Where is My Mind? You've managed to pack so much information into each episode, but also give it a nice flowy narrative structure. I think I have bench listened to all the episodes in one day. It was really that enjoyable to consume one other thing worth mentioning to the audience is that you have made the information quite accessible with easy to understand non-technical language which is not easy considering the subject matter discussed because of all those things i think the podcast resonated with such a wide audience i've shared it to my network and got only positive feedback it really resonated with so many people who had only good things to say about it What was most impressive to me in the series was the quality of your guests, fascinating people, original out-of-the-box thinkers, and people who had the most amazing stories to tell. My question to you is, why did you decide to make the series in the first place? How did you find all these amazing people and convince them to record with you? And what was the initial response upon release
1: back in 2019? Thank you very much. So let me give you the history behind the podcast. I wrote the book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, which is very similar to the podcast in terms of the material covered. I would say the podcast is more of a summary and you get to hear from the actual scientists and experiencers themselves. But there's a lot of parallels between the book and the podcast. So I'd written the book, wrote it in 2017. It was published in 2018. But even before I published it, I think, I reached out to my old friend from high school, Matt Ford, who, who's now with Blue Duck Media, and they were the ultimate producers of the show. Um, And I said, Matt, like, I want to do a podcast. And he at the time, I knew he worked in sports media. Um, So like mainstream sports, Fox Sports, lots of mainstream shows. And he goes, you're not going to believe it, Mark. I'm actually going to work at one of the biggest podcast production companies. So like, let's let's talk about this, because the ideas you're, you're coming up with, you could do a traditional podcast where you interview people long form, but. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to reach as many people. So let's think about another way of of making this digestible because also the topics are very heady. So at first I was really resistant to it. I was like, Matt, I want to get this out right now. I have a book coming out. This is such important stuff. Let me just interview a bunch of people. I I have access to them. And he, he urged me not to do that. He said, just please wait and let's do something really creative here. So I listened to him. So I listened to Matt and um, it was really his idea and his his business partner um, at Blue Duck Media. They really, they, they're experts at this stuff of how to make digestible content that that really grips people. So it was a fun process of basically they were trusting me with the content itself to come up with all the people to interview and do that. I mean, they coached me through like the mechanics of how to do interviews and how to have good sound quality and that sort of thing. But it was on me to interview all the people and come up with the script of how we could have a conversation about this and I think one of the reasons that it went so smoothly is that Matt and I have known each other for such a long time and have been friends so that there's an intangible thing that's kind of rare that he was willing to take this on as a non-traditional project and spend so much time on it I mean because they have lots of other projects they do that are much bigger and they they spend a lot of time on this which I'm very appreciative of and although we've reached a lot of people around the world compared to other projects in the sports world, it's relatively small, the podcast. So the way that was the way it went down. As I did the interviews, we had transcripts of all the interviews that I did, and there were about 50 of them. So it's a lot of content to go through. And we had to talk through, well, what would be the flow of a, of a series where we could do a digestible number of episodes that people could try to binge? And then we would iterate on it, and then we would actually go in the studio and do it and then listen to how it sounded. So there was a lot of iteration. But the key for us was wanting to keep people engaged on it and also not make it too heady and complex and yet and, and while not losing the essence of what was happening. So over time we iterated on, on the eventual format. And we also had really like top notch editors with the music and to make the sound quality the way that it was. So it's like the stars aligned.
0: Yeah. The quality definitely shows in the final product. The question I'll have for you, your sidekick, Matt, who's, also participating in the podcast series he kind of sounds skeptical and he's going through a bit of a conversion because at the end he's all sort of almost all in and be like oh these are fascinating things now I understand quantum mechanics now I understand all these concepts so I'm curious to hear from you if if you think that Matt has in the end develop an appreciation for for the topics that you've covered and for also being a part of this experience with you what What was this journey like for both of you?
1: He had appreciation for it after he became exposed to it. And that was another dynamic that I think was really helpful is that he was relatively newer to the material, but open-minded because he was sitting there listening to the interviews I was having I mean, He had read the book as well, but then he's hearing this from the scientists and the experiencers. So he, I think I, my opinion is that he was shifting himself. And that actually comes across in the episodes where he, you see him opening up more because it takes time for this, this stuff to sink in. And I had already written the book and, and done the 50 interviews. And I do think that doing those interviews took me to a different level of understanding because there was so much content. In the I mean, most of the interviews were over an hour. Some were, were like over two hours with these people. And to hear the information over and over again from different voices, it helped me um, understand things. But we, we also had an appreciation that a lot of listeners wouldn't – have had exposure to this material. So we wanted to ease people into it. That was at least our thought process. And um, it's hard because for some people they might say, well, the things you're talking about are obvious those who have studied the material before, like, you know, this is too simple, this is simple stuff. And other people might say, well, this is way over my head. You're talking about quantum physics and like consciousness. This is too complex. So we were trying to strike a balance. And ultimately where we ended up was we want to ease people in as much as possible and then and still cover a wide range of phenomena. And and that came from me, but it also came from Blue Duck Media and Matt of, you know, having this broader picture, because I was so in the weeds with it, of saying, like, you know, how can we really reach people? And that's where they landed on it.
0: And what was the initial response when you released the content?
1: Yeah, I mean, we still hear from people. Um, We we generally get very positive responses to it. And at the same time, I I wish we could reach even more people. Uh, But there are and I talk about this in all my books, This is to listen to that podcast requires an openness to having a paradigm shift. And for some people, it's like there's a wall. They're not going to do it. They hear about life after death, no. Psychic phenomenon, no, I'm not going to do it. So there's a limited audience necessarily, but I do think there's a, people are opening up more and more. And then in terms of the marketing, it's a big challenge. It's something that I haven't quite figured out with all my work, including my books, is like how do you really reach people with this content? And what I find is that it, there's a lot of word of mouth and with a podcast, it's super easy. You can just text the link to people and it's, you, you get people who are enthusiastic about it and they tell their friends and it seems to spread that way.
0: One thing that stood out to me when I was listening to the, to the series was the quality of the guests. They're really amazing people and I've mentioned that before. How did you find them and what was your research process? Did you get any help from anyone at all?
1: I reached out to them, but I initially found them because I had done a lot of research. So I knew the people that I wanted to interview and I knew the general areas that I wanted to cover. And I said, Matt, these are the top people. And then I figured once I got a few big names, it would be much easier to get other big names. The other thing that really helped is that for my book, I had endorsements from a wide range of, of the scientists. So I already had contact with them because they had read my first book and, and supported it with a quotation that I like put on the cover and stuff. So those people were easy to get. And then once I had those people, I could reach out to others and say, hey, look, X, Y, and Z, they, they're on this podcast, and people sign up quickly. They say, I want to be part of that too. So uh, it, 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 that part was very seamless.
0: Yeah, that actually sounds pretty straightforward. I want to ask you out of the 50, I think you've, you've mentioned that you've conducted about 50 interviews. So out of the 50 plus interviews that you've conducted, do you have one that stood out the most, one that blew your mind the most? I'm just kind of sort of keen to better understand which one's
1: your favorite. All of the people that had near-death experiences, those, all of them affected me in a very profound way. And the one that stands out is the one with Daniel Brinkley, which is available on YouTube in its entirety. It's like about an hour and a half long. Uh, he had four near-death experiences in his life. He was struck by lightning, um, open-heart surgery twice and brain surgery once. And each time he was in this other realm and had a life review where he went through his entire life from the beginning and relived it through the eyes of each person that he affected, um, including his time in Vietnam when he was killing people and he got to feel what it was like to be the person he killed and then also their children. And he got to feel the pain of all those people. So when I, when you, it's like I had read those things, I had heard other interviews, but as I was having those conversations, I was shifting for sure.
0: Yeah. Brinkley's case is incredible. I, uh, it really is truly incredible. I have listened to a bunch of interviews that he's done over the years. I think most of them are available on YouTube and, uh, he has gone through incredible experiences. That's, that's for sure. Something very, very special and unique, uh, about his story. Reading about NDEs in, in your book in an end to upside down thinking really triggered me to do more research in the NDE space. Uh, which I have been over the last few months. What really strikes me, and it's it's just, I can't really explain this, is that a lot of people who come back from an NDE, um, especially in a hospital setting, they can retell very precise, very descriptive stories. Uh, As an example, a patient comes back and says to the doctor, well, I was seemingly unconscious, you know that I was but I've heard you say this and do this and then in the other room this happened and that happened and this nurse brought this device and they have these scenarios that they replay with uh, as I said they're they're quite, quite, quite precise and quite specific and when they relate these stories like nobody really engages with that these doctors simply do not want to investigate they do not seem to want to know despite the evidence, despite the mountain of evidence, and then you kind of have to ask yourself a question, like how much evidence do you need to um, get interested? Like what, like there's something evidently going on there. So why would you not look at that?
1: I think there's so many factors in this. Um, One is ego. So it's like, if, if what that person is saying is true, then my career is being threatened in terms of what I thought about how the world worked and if you have people that are in the position where they've like made it to the point of being a phd or a doctor they have they've made it to the top of their profession so i think what comes with that in many cases is a bit of ego of like wait a second you're going to totally upend my entire worldview. view like you don't have the training that i have even if they don't say it that way i think that that's like kind of a natural human part of psychology so that can come up in these cases you're talking about they're known as veridical out-of-body experiences where the thing the person perceives from outside the body, so meaning their consciousness is hovering over their body, sometimes it's even outside of the room that they're in, and they see or hear things that are shown to be accurate when they're resuscitated and tell the doctor or they tell family members. That's significant because many people, the skeptics, will say that a near death experience is just a hallucination that's caused by the brain when it's in the process of dying. Whereas in these veridical out of body experiences, it's not a hallucination if they get it right so these veridical cases and these are hard to prove so the number of them in the literature it's like over a hundred there's a book called the self does not die that goes through the documented cases there are probably many more but to actually document it properly you've got a timestamp when the memory occurred and then know what the person's physiology was doing at the time and then you can see wait a second this person was clinically dead they shouldn't be able to have a lucid consciousness, let alone something from outside their body. That's just not possible. So this phenomenon destroys the scientific paradigm and people are resistant to it. I mean, we're, we're talking now, I'm fresh off of writing this book on medicine. When I get into fundamentals of microbiology, there are similar issues that come up of like scientists believe things because they were taught it a certain way. And then here is an alternative perspective that challenges the fundamental methods that are used. And you see a major resistance to it. So th- this is part of, I think, human psychology, part of the human ego. But then I wonder, at the deeper level, is there some dark darkness too that is latching on to the to the desire to to fixate on a paradigm that's incorrect? I don't know exactly how it all works.
0: Yeah, sadly, this unwillingness to change one's point of view based on new inputs and new data and and evidence is something that's really plaguing our society at the moment, and probably has for a couple of decades. I'm fairly certain that if you were to survey um, a, a big part of society with a simple question around you know, what professions are the most curious professions? They would say, yes, doctors, they are like the most curious, open-minded people because they have to doctor, right? That's 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 what it means. You kind of tinker with things and you like how can you do that without being curious? And your scientists and your researchers, they are the most curious people, but that's sadly really not the case. And I think we need to move away from that perception because there's implicit trust that we can outsource our curiosity To these groups of people and they'll do the hard work and they'll discover the truth for us and i think that's wrong let's talk a little bit about remote viewing because that's another interesting topic that you've covered in your book just to briefly summarize for the audience so they understand what we're talking about remote viewing is a psychic ability where a gifted participant in the experiment can remote view into a location independent of distance and I think in your book, if I remember correctly, and I've I've read a ton of examples of re- remote viewing all over the shop. So it might be confusing things, but I think there is an example where a plane crashed in a jungle and um, nobody could find it. And they used a remote viewer and the remote viewer was pretty precise and found the airplane in no time. So this is what I'm keen to find out from you. Considering the, uh, the example, as well as the fact that I think, as you mentioned in the book, there's quite a lot of the classified information on websites like CIA.gov, which are very easy to find. Do you think the government is continuing these programs? I mean, why would they stop,
1: right? I can't remember exactly, but I think I talked about this with Uri Geller, who who is in the main series. He's in episode four. He's a famous psychic. And the U.S. government experimented with him on remote viewing and those documents have been released. And they say that he was locked in a shielded room and he was able to see things with his mind in a clear and unambiguous way. That might have been the exact quote in the in the CIA document that's been declassified. But when I interviewed him, I'm pretty sure he said something to the effect of and I can't speak on whether this is still being done, but like very strongly alluded to the fact that it is. And this is the way governments seem to work, which is that you find out years later that they were doing these experiments, but it was classified at the time. So I don't have any direct knowledge, but like my my assumption is that sure, why wouldn't they be using this if it's if it's shown to be effective, which is what they say in the documents that have been declassified. They say remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. They talk it. They show the scientists that evaluated the stuff, and so I'm sure this is being used.
0: Yeah, if I was a betting man, I'd be betting on that too, for sure. There's so much utility to having access to such technology, if I can even call it technology, maybe psychic technology. All right, let's keep moving. One of the most intriguing things in your book is when you talk about the nature of consciousness and the fact that the scientific establishment has predicated its entire body of research on an assumption that brain creates consciousness. So how could this be that people who operate in this space professionally, when they talk about consciousness, they're really essentially standing on shaky foundations and have no evidence from the foundational claim. Like, what what do you think is going on there?
1: Right, yeah, it's, it's a fundamental presupposition of a lot of modern science, and this goes on in microbiology as well, because I just wrote about this in my book on medicine, where there are these assumptions that people have, and they're not even questioned as assumptions. They're just assumed To be, They're so deeply ingrained that no one even thinks to ask whether that thing is true. It's like the basic foundation. And it turns out to be a house of cards. (laughs) That's the pattern. And that, that basic assumption in this case is that the brain creates consciousness. And the key word there is creates. And this is where people get tripped up because they'll say, Wait, Mark, there's a field of neuroscience and they know if we mess with this part of the brain, the person can't see anymore or their memory doesn't work. So what are you talking about the brain doesn't create consciousness? Because all, all that we see in neuroscience is a correlation. They're even called neural correlates of consciousness, where when you affect the brain, consciousness is affected in a, in a corresponding manner. But that doesn't tell you the relationship between brain and consciousness. There are other explanations that could explain why, when you change the brain, consciousness changes. And let's just say the brain were, we're, we're like an antenna. Okay, let's say you're watching television and there's an antenna that's picking up a signal and you take a hammer and smash the antenna on your television. All of a sudden that show that you're watching on TV, it's, it's coming up scratchy. You're not, you don't get a clear picture and it's not because the signal was damaged. It's because the apparatus that was responsible for processing the signal was damaged. The signal was actually untouched and that, that's what it might be like with consciousness and the brain. That the brain is an apparatus that processes consciousness, it filters it. It receives, transmits it, something like that. It's a transducer, but it's not actually creating it. And this is, it's like a, if you're going on a hike, you can take a path and go one way on one trail, go on another trail by going the other direction. And science has just gone hardcore on this brain creates consciousness trail. And what I'm arguing, like many other people is, wait, let's go back to the beginning and figure out which trail to go on. Is it actually a causal relationship between brain and consciousness? And where I come out on this is that there's so much evidence that points us on the other trail that no brain isn't actually creating it, the brain's involved in another way. And then that just destroys the the paradigm for the nature of reality. Because the minute you think that the brain is outside of our body, then we have to rethink everything.
0: Yeah, this strikes me as one of those cases where being partially correct is deemed good enough. What comes to mind is the famous Terence McKenna observation, which is that modern science is based on one key principle. That principle is, give us one miracle and we'll explain the rest. And what he means by the miracle here is the appearance of all the mass and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it in a single instance from nothing. People who work from that implicit assumption that material brain originates consciousness can build experimental process and hardware that provides evidence for that claim exactly. And the anomalies they encounter simply get brushed aside as irrelevant or statistically insignificant. What's hard to rationalize, and I keep going back to the same thing here in this conversation again and again, is that why as a curious person, you'd not be interested in finding a more complete model that explains all of it, even accounting for the anomalies on the fringes. I I just, I don't get it. Maybe scientists in this space do think about that, but for whatever reason, choose not to openly disclose that they are. I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's an industry, all these things, and it happens in medicine, it happens in, in everything, that there is, a, there is a financial interest in certain assumptions not being questioned. And what my interest has been is looking back at all the foundational assumptions and asking, like, wait, I've always thought this thing to be true. How is it that I really know for sure that this thing is true? And when I started asking that question, then I realized, actually, I'm not that certain about it, beyond, well, a lot of smart people said it's true. Well, okay, what are they basing that on? And then you see, like, Well, where's the footnote for that thing that they said? The footnote doesn't actually exist. Wait, they actually haven't studied this in a scientific manner where they've run things properly. I'm not making generalizations, but there is this pattern here that I'm finding in many other areas.
0: Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. At the end of the day, the footnote for so many critical elements not existing is more common than one might think. In so many instances, it's kind of turtles all the way down. I don't know if you've noticed this, but... In my view, there has been an accelerated shift away from epistemic humility towards more dogmatic sort of fixed determinism. I'm not not sure if I'm actually verbalizing this properly. There seems to be less and less space for conversation, for challenging norms and conventions, no space for expression of any type of skepticism. It's a strangely dark state of affairs where so-called truth and facts are handed down to the public on a plate. One must ingest that truth, never question it, or face all kinds of cancellations. I actually really feel for people who are in the science world and they can't really speak their minds. This was so incredibly evident really on the surface um, over the last three, four, five years. I've got another question for you, which I think you might find interesting as as opposed to all the previous questions today. (laughs) Um, I hope this is going to make sense. The question is about language and its adequacy to explain the non-materialist and the mystical. In an end to upside-down thinking, you are grappling with some seriously mind-bending concepts that are not present in a mainstream conversation at all. In order to get things across, you default to materialist scientific concepts and language. You talk about quantum mechanics, particle entanglement, and things of that nature. So. When you're researching and writing the book and working on your podcast, did you ever find yourself in a spot where you thought that your linguistic toolkit is simply inadequate, where language is simply too limited to convey some of the ideas you were trying to shape into cohesive sentences? How how did that experience feel in the moment? How did you think about that? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. It's a fundamental... It's like philosophy of science is basically what you're talking about. How is it that we can learn about things, about the nature of reality. And the scientific method has been the preferred method in recent history and there are benefits to it, but there's a fundamental issue with the scientific method. It tries to isolate variables and then look at results. So you have an independent variable, you run controls and you see what the the result is. And um, you can't control for consciousness if consciousness is outside the brain or if consciousness is the basis of reality, then in every single experiment, C equals question mark. So we've got a problem there. So we're going to be, we're, it's, it's going to be limited inherently. But I think what you're talking about is, is slightly different and really important. Like a lot of these phenomena, we cannot study using the scientific method or it's really hard to, to run, to actually isolate a variable, to run the proper controls because they are ephemeral, and sometimes they're non-physical and literally they have to be experienced by someone so if someone's in a it could be a psychedelic state it could be in a near-death experience we can look at anecdotal accounts but the problem that science has is that those anecdotes don't don't have the proper controls that they would like to see so where I come out is like if we can use the scientific method let's do it to the best of our ability and acknowledge the shortcomings but then we also have to expand into these other areas where it's not going to appeal to certain materialist scientists but the evidence can't be ignored when it starts to pile up. Like it has to be, it has to be looked at at least and new hypotheses have to be generated and that's just not happening enough.
0: All right. Let me ask you this. When I got to the final chapter in your book, as well as when I listened to the last episode of the podcast, I thought the message that you've encapsulated in both instances was inherently positive. It was a message that carried a lot of hope. Now you've released the podcast in 2019 which was a couple of years ago. How positive and hopeful do you feel in 2023?
1: It's a very good point, Patrick. Podcast came out in 2019, fall of 2019. And at that point, I had written one book and did a podcast series. And now I've written five more on top of the first one. And a large reason for writing more is that there's nuance to this notion of hope and what our future holds for us. Because there is the dark and the light, like we talked about before. And I think a lot of A lot of the spiritual community, to just generalize, can get caught up in the light aspect, which is very apparent when you look at transcendent states of consciousness. And you look at the majority of near-death experiences. There are some, a small percentage of near-death experiences that are very negative and hellish. So that exists too. But most people that come back and talk about their NDE, they were in a state of unconditional love, like beyond description. It's so positive they want to go back to being dead without being suicidal, that's like the common theme. So that's a very positive spin on things that you're getting from people. And it comes from a lot of psychedelic accounts and from meditation, some spiritually transformative experiences report the same thing, which is that the basic fundamental substrate of reality is something that's like love and interconnectedness. So the paradox here is that that might be true. And yet there's also duality mixed in it or somehow they coexist and this is like it doesn't make sense that you could have unconditional love as the basis of reality and yet have hellish experiences on our planet where there's murder and mayhem and pedophilia and all this other stuff that can exist too and and theft and lying how do how do we reconcile that Um, and I, I think it's endlessly complex I mean we touched on it before is that maybe it is light at the core it's all light And then there is this evolutionary drive for some reason for consciousness to want to have an experience and in so doing it creates an obstruction from itself. It creates this evolutionary stimulus. That's one hypothesis that's been put forward, but I don't, I don't know for sure how it works. My do am I optimistic in the same way that I was and we end in the last episode. It's we talk about hope and I do think that more people are waking up in the last few years have caused people to question reality and think about life and death more and question the authority figures and whether or not we can trust everything from a so-called expert. So maybe I am hopeful in that regard because like, even the most steadfast skeptics I'm finding are, they're asking questions about things they would never have asked questions about before. The flip side of that is the deeper I've gone, the more I'm aware of the darkness and, and it's way worse than I thought than I would have ever imagined. It's way more deceptive and insidious and really entrenched in the world that we exist in. So that part of me is maybe more pessimistic, like we have to wake up on many levels and maybe people are waking up on one level or this other one, but like there's some deep stuff that has to be overturned in our thinking if we wanna progress. So in that regard, maybe I'm more pessimistic than I was in 2019.
0: I had an inkling that that's going to be your answer. And that's due to the fact that over the last few years, the curtain, this thick curtain, has lifted so much and has ultimately uncovered such a vast landscape of darkness, if you like. But at the end of the day, I think one has to stay positive and optimistic and continue doing good work, which I personally believe you do. And that ultimately has to be the trick over the long run. You know, when I started this show, I was thinking about giving it a dual purpose. On one hand, I really wanted people to learn something from it, so have interesting guests like yourself, and then put a spotlight on your work. So, if somebody's interested in a particular space, they can go and investigate further by, you know, buying your books, or listen to uh, your podcast, and really engaging with material. But on the other hand, I wanted things to go beyond the conversation and always have some tangible, actionable things that people can take away from these conversations. So taking that little fact into consideration, what do you think individuals could do to help move the needle in the right direction and help change this seemingly paralyzing status quo?
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, a lot of truth is coming to the surface these days in many areas, so that's a definitely positive development. But where I come out on this is that it starts with each individual having shifts and we can't control what other people do or what other people think. And I've had to really face this because I'm putting out books that are challenging people's paradigms and the podcast. And I always have to accept that some people are not going to want to engage with it or they're going to mischaracterize it and not actually understand the arguments that I'm making. And I can't control what goes on in their thought process so I, I try to always bring it back to like what am i doing myself to get to the to the list version of myself and then do what i can but the outcome beyond that is beyond anything that i can control so it's like if you have a lot of people doing that doing the inner work rather than just externalizing everything because it is important to know what's going on in the external world but then if the inner work isn't done then people can start projecting their inner issues and we see a lot of that happen in the world today too so it's like it's the balance sort of like with the light dark is the internal and the external and yet at some paradoxical level there is no external it's probably only internal and at some level there's only light and probably no dark and i don't i can't really make sense of that but that seems to be where i come out
0: okay what about education what 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 do you think is the biggest correction required in education to get us back on the path to progress?
1: Well, a big part of it is learning how to think. Like, what is a proper thought process to ask questions about things? That seems to be lacking these days because we're told if you ask questions, you're a conspiracy theorist or like you should be allowed to ask questions or crazy things like that. I mean, talking about whether people should take vitamin D when they have symptoms of illness, that's conspiracy theory. I mean, really outlandish stuff uh, <laughs> so their there, the thought process is important but then I worry about the information itself that we're being fed because if we get entrenched in a paradigm that it's harder to break through and I know this from my own experience like you really have to do work and put energy into breaking through paradigms and the paradigm is a certain way because we're taught certain things and with AI, if people are going to be learning through AI, I mean, Google's one version of it, where you learn about things through, through searching. And if the searches are biased, then you're only going to get certain information. And we see this now with like ChatGPT, you might get biased information that's politically motivated or motivated toward a scientific paradigm. So it's the combination of having like wide access to information and then having a thought process that's open minded, that's actually geared toward inquiry. That Those two are critical.
0: Yep, these are pretty rare commodities. Open-mindedness, critical thinking—we need, we definitely need more of that. One other area that I'd love to cover with you here today are the institutes. In my preliminary research prior to this interview, I came across two names. The first one was the Monroe Institute, and the other one was the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which I think you are affiliated with. So, could you tell us what these organizations are, how they're funded, what? are they
1: doing day-to-day,
0: and if they are growing in any meaningful way?
1: Um, I think they're probably growing in notoriety. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been around for 50 years. Um, I'm not sure when the Monroe Institute was founded, but they've been around for a while. Also, the University of Virginia has a division of perceptual studies that's been around since the late 1960s. So this research is being done by certain organizations. The problem is that they're the minority. And the amount of funding that they receive relative to what a mainstream theory receives, it's it's minuscule. So that's a, a big challenge. It's a challenge on the funding side, but also on the side of the scientists, because you need a scientist who's willing to break the mold. And it could be devastating to one's career to say, hey, I wanna look into whether remote viewing is real. Like just doing that, you could be damaging your career. So it's like, you need to find scientists that are brave and then you need the funding to match it. I mean, maybe if the funding were there first, there would be scientists who would say, okay, I'll do it. But it's uh, it's there's a, the the scale needs to be tipped more in the direction of these alternative ideas.
0: Yes, hundred percent. Tipping that scale is going to take a lot of effort, and a lot of people will have to get involved. But ultimately, it is a fight worth fighting. Earlier today, you've um, talked to us a little bit about the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is great. I also believe um, in our previous conversation. You've mentioned something about the University of Virginia as well. Now, these guys have a department called Division of Perceptual Studies. I think that's what it's called. Could you tell us what you know about it? Who founded it? Who's running it? What kind of research are they conducting day to day?
1: It was founded in the late 1960s by a very credible psychiatrist. His name was Dr. Ian Stevenson. And he was doing research as a psychiatrist on children that had memories of. A life that was not their own basically and he was doing rigorous research into this topic looking at historical records to see if it lined up with what the kids said looking at medical records because sometimes the kids would have birthmarks and physical defects that they claimed were from this past life like the way in which the person died in the past life and then in the current child's life they would have these bodily issues and he was able to find evidence for this stuff And like reading his books, he's like where uh, reincarnation and biology intersect. He has this two part series. They're about a thousand pages each. I mean, massive books on that topic. And then he's written a bunch of other ones, too. So he was a rigorous scientist and a doctor. So because of his credibility, this department has been allowed to persist for a long time. But I think like anything in this area, there's always pushback. And um, you would maybe have expected organizations like this to have grown more over many decades and they've still remained the minority.
0: Do you know if any work in this category is being conducted outside of the US?
1: I think there are some like one-off scientists. The University of Edinburgh maybe has had a scientist or two study things, and uh, but it's just, there isn't a centralized place other than Institute of Noetic Sciences and these other places. And I'm not aware of organizations that are growing. There's also an, an organization called the Galileo Commission it's, it's headed by David Lorimer, and it's a lot of people of this mindset. And I think there is an association of the post-materialist scientists. Um, the University of Arizona has a conference that's called the Science of Consciousness. So they're involved in this, uh, but that's in the US. Uh, the Scientific and Medical Network, based in the UK. And I think there's a global presence that they talk about these phenomena. But it's really, really small when you compare it to any other field of science. It's like a drop in the bucket.
0: This is a, a bit of a pivot question that just popped into my mind. If you were given an opportunity to teach these things at one of the universities, would you take the job?
1: Huh. It's really hard for me to even think about that because I can't imagine there's anyone that would want to hire me With uh, given the topics I talk about and given the way the institutions go. In order for that to happen, you would have to have a very forward-thinking organization Um, If that were to happen, I would, I would consider it. But it's just so far from the current reality that, well, I will say this, I'm on the board of an organization, not just the noetic sciences, but it's called the school of wholeness and enlightenment. And it's being built outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains. Uh, It's not, it's literally under construction. So hopefully it'll be done soon, but the, the goal there is to be able, is for people to be able to teach on spiritual topics topics that will help transform the planet in a very positive way as it relates not just to spirituality but also to business and other areas too so that's a place where people like me or or others could teach but it's more like in a workshop fashion or a conference i think what you're talking about is like at a, a place that's a more traditional school and so far no opportunities have come up and i'm not Totally surprised, given the state of the world. And we, we've only talked about consciousness today. I've, I've written about other things that are very controversial. So it's like you would need to have someone that's willing to engage in, in really questioning the foundations of other areas, too.
0: I really love the idea of that school that you just described. And it's so good that somebody decided to put the money together and actually build a physical place and just get going with it. That's, uh, that's really awesome. All right, Mark. I think this is a very good place for us to wrap up. We've agreed to chat for one hour today and we're getting very close to that first hour. My intention today was to put a bit of a spotlight on a fraction of of the work that you've produced. And I think we've done that relatively successfully. So tell us, please, what is the best way to find you, how to stay close to your work, where are you posting and how to keep an eye on all the good work that you'll be doing in the near future?
1: Sure. Well, my website is a good place to start. It's my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. My books are all on Amazon. You can get them in hard copy, Kindle, or Audible format. And um, yeah, the books are uh, An End Upside Down Thinking, the one we talked about today, An End Upside Down Living, which is about how to think about living life from this perspective, An End Upside Down Liberty, which is like on political and economic theory, An End Upside Down Contact, which is about contact with non-human intelligence, an end to the Upside Down Reset, which is about the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, their vision for society that they've explicitly talked about, and the most recent one, an end to Upside Down Medicine, which challenges the allopathic model. So those are all available. And also my podcast, Where Is My Mind? You can get that on all the major players. It is an eight-episode series. Uh, Even though we did it in 2019, the concepts are still relevant today, so it's something you could easily check out. And we tried to make it short and bingeable so you could digest it quickly
0: wonderful stuff mark thank you so much for making time for me i have thoroughly enjoyed reading your book and i equally enjoyed this conversation today hopefully we can keep in touch and get you back for another chat next year i mean you've written so much stuff you've got so many books Um, i'd be very very keen to talk to you again in the meantime all the best with the work and all your projects to me you're making a big impact you're helping people to understand certain things that are not being present and discussed in the mainstream and i sincerely hope you will continue with your efforts for a very very long time good luck with everything and see you soon
1: thank you very much thanks for having me patrick
0: so there you have it hope you have enjoyed this interview with mark gober as much as i have and that you have found the man and his work interesting inspiring and intriguing. Do check out Marks and Enter Upside Down Thinking. It will open your mind to a whole new reality full of possibility and to book full of mind-bending facts and stories. Also, do give Where Is My Mind podcast a go. It will not disappoint you. I guarantee you that. Thank you for your attention today and see you next time.